thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome to this uh, second study on the book of Exodus. Tonight we're going to consider the call of Moses. And in this study covering chapters 3 through 6, we're going to look at six important points that I think are worth highlighting in the study. First, we're going to look at God as a teacher. Uh, God is very much interested in our formation. He's not only there to provide us with information about him uh, as if um, the only point of salvation was to um, reveal to us some important point and then we could figure out the rest. He knew that what was required was to have a guide, someone who can guide us, show us, teach us. And he is already doing this with Moses who will then become the guide for Israel. So God as a teacher is an important point. Another important point we're going to look at tonight is God as the Lord of history. Indeed, um, our faith within the Catholic Church is inseparable from history because salvation is revealed in history for the purpose of redeeming man in a historical context. So God is definitely Lord of history, guiding it to its appointed end. The third thing we'll take a look at today is the name of God, how important it is and how it was revealed. Then we'll look at the covenantal curse that is discussed in these chapters. We'll look at specifically also the power of the state, how important the state is, and then finally Moses as a leader. So we start with God as a teacher, and we're going to end up with Moses as a leader because as God teaches us, he wants us to be leaders. Uh, leaders when in our own sphere, in our own families, leaders in the way of salvation, in imitation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, let us then begin the first, uh, the first uh, main theme, that is God as a teacher. Recall that in the prior conversation between God and Moses, uh, God, uh, Moses had a number of objections to being sent, being the one who would be sent to bring out Israel from Egypt. And God, as a teacher, answers Moses' objections one by one. These objections are, first, Moses' inadequacy, second, his ignorance, third, his incredibility, that is, he may not be credible, fourth, his inarticulateness, 
his ability of not articulating, as I just showed you right now, trying to say this word. And finally, his insubordination. So these are the points that God will um, answer Moses uh, as Moses raises these objections. Let's consider the first one, inadequacy. What is common to Moses' various responses is that in all of them, he is thinking in terms of his resources, his abilities, his power, not God's. Which is very important because in the life of um, salvation, in the work of God, what is fundamental first and foremost, as is taught in our doctrine of grace, is that everything is given to us by grace, through grace. And that grace is this gratuitous gift which is physically and substantially manifested in our souls for the purpose of salvation. And that grace is completely free and furthermore without it nothing can be done. Moses is thinking apart from grace. He's considering the work of salvation as if it depended on man. Now, Remember, we need to look at Exodus in the overall context of Scripture, but most specifically in the overall context of the Pentateuch, the first five books. And when we consider that in the book of Genesis, we have had examples of men, perhaps the best examples of men, who have tried to take things into their own hands. And every time they did that, we ended up with a mess. So in the case of Abraham, for instance, Abraham and Sarah could not wait for the, um, for, the, for the work of God, for his action, and they took matters in their own hands, and therefore they got Ishmael and the trouble that ensued. And every time this happens, every time this happens, trouble follows. It is therefore very important for us to understand how obedience to God's will play a central role in our life of faith. Now, Moses is a shepherd, and as we know from the preceding narratives, the Egyptians did not have dealings with shepherds. So, for instance, look in Genesis 46, verse 34. Moses knew well that he would, he would have no official recognition among the Egyptians. He is not coming from a position of power. He's not coming from a position of authority. He's not a representative of a different empire or different military force. He's a shepherd who has absolutely no legal status in front of the Egyptians. So he's thinking this way. He's thinking, well, I'm going to be a shepherd. I am essentially the equivalent of an illegal immigrant. I'm nobody. I have no status. How can I go talk to Pharaoh and convince him of anything? And God responds and says, I will be with you, as we see in Exodus 3.12. So then, for Moses... The question isn't, who am I, but whose am I? In other words, who do I belong to? Who am I the representative of? He thought that he should be going there and standing before Pharaoh as though representing himself or representing his people. But that was not what God intended. God intended for Moses to be his representative. And we can see, therefore, from Moses' hesitation or sense of inadequacy that he has not yet assimilated this concept that he is God's. And perhaps one reason why it was really difficult for Moses to think this way is because Moses knew himself all too well. After all, he is one who lived in luxury, whereas his people lived in poverty. He is the one who killed a fellow Egyptian, and he is the one 
who tried to lord it over the Israelites and they rejected him. He remembers and knows who he is. He is fundamentally inadequate in that he is right. Where he is wrong is in thinking that God cannot use inadequate people to do his will. And in the process of doing his will, make them adequate. It is this transformative work of grace that turns an inadequate person into a saint, which is very difficult for anyone to go through and endure. Because if, let's say, a person was like the Blessed Virgin Mary, perfect in all ways, then one might think, then it will be a lot easier to accept to do God's will. Because there is nothing wrong in me, there is nothing inadequate about me, I can be in God's presence, I am his friend, therefore, um, I am therefore one who can do his will. The interesting thing is that those who are closer to the Tar Lady, those who are more like her, find themselves to be least adequate. The sense of inadequacy does not go away as sanctity grows. In fact, it deepens. Why? Because fundamentally saints are closer to the mountain that essentially is a symbolic representation of God than sinners. And the closer you, you get to the mountain, the taller the mountain will be. Hence, the sense of inadequacy, inadequacy becomes greater. The difference, though, is that the saint is seeped into God's love and is able to believe that God loves them even though they are inadequate. As Father Kurapi said once, Man on the face of the earth is, but, is like a grain of sand. He's so small, he's insignificant. But, and he added, God loves the grain of sand. And that is key. Moses has yet to discover this. So this is essentially the whole idea of Moses' inadequacy. A, uh, an exegete by the name of D.E. Gowen stated, In the Old Testament, I will be with you, points out that overwhelmingly it is used with people in or about to assume positions of leadership who face either grave danger or task whose risk of failure is great. Therefore, it was never intended as an unconditional assurance of the security of the status quo or as a platitude of a general well-being. As a guarantee, God provides a sign. So the idea is, I will be with you means specifically in the task that I'm, I am entrusting you with, I will be with you to complete it. You are not doing it alone. I will be with you does not mean I am with you as if I'm everywhere. It means specifically I will be there to do the work with you and as a, as a guarantee God indeed provides a sign. And this is exactly what Christ does throughout his ministry and his life. He provides visible, tangible signs to show us that he will be with us until the consummation of the ages. And the interesting thing about the church is that throughout the 2,000 plus years since the, the church was born, there has not been an age that the church was without signs, meaning miracles, because God is with the church as she walks on this pilgrimage on earth towards heaven. And then this inadequacy, therefore, is something we all share. We can all be in in Moses' shoes, or you know, put ourselves in his, uh, in his place, so to speak, and consider that when God calls us, and he calls us in a variety of ways, we have the sense of inadequacy of saying, well, I'm not prepared, I'm not ready, I can't do this. 
I don't have what it takes. God knows that. Before He even called us, He created us. He knows what we're capable of. He knows what we're incapable of. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our strengths. He knows everything about us. What is more important for us is not to focus on us, not to think about us, but to think about God. And that, that process of turning away from self to God, that process of ignoring our limitations, ignoring our constraints, ignoring our weaknesses, and focusing on God's greatness, God's glory, God's power, God's love, God's mercy, that process is this conversion that Christ calls us into. Because as we do that, this work is not easy. It isn't, it isn't um, so to speak, as if you turn your eyes from the mirror to look at through a window. It's not that easy. It is actually very, very hard. It is a work of a lifetime to turn from that mirror and look out through the window to the sky. But that is precisely the process of sanctification. God is aware of it, and He expects this from us. The second was ignorance. Moses anticipated that he would be asked a question that he would be unable to answer satisfactorily by either the Egyptians or the Israelites. So he knew he didn't have all the answers. So his concern is that when he asks for the name, what is, you know, if I go to them and I ask, who sent you, what am I going to say? And his concern is that, number one, potentially the Israelites, having been in Egypt for so long, may have forgotten the name of the Lord. That is a possibility. More likely, it could be a way for them to validate that he is indeed sent by the right God. And one reason why the name is important is obviously because the Israelites have been living in Egypt for so long, and there every God has a name. So it is already ingrained in them to ask for the name of a God. That's why it potentially is in his mind, because remember, he grew up in the, in the Egyptian court. Now, the Israelites believed that an individual's name or that an individual's nature was reflected in his name. So in Genesis, there are different aspects of God's nature which are reflected with different names. And you have the following, El Elyon, which means God Most High, and that was a name used in Genesis 14, 18 through 20. El Roy, God Who Sees Me, in Genesis 16, 13. El Shaddai, God, God Almighty, in Genesis 17, 1. And El Olam, God Everlasting, in Genesis 21.33. So these are all different attributes of God. This name is very different. This is not about a particular attribute of God. This is a name that reflects God's true nature. And that's why we use it in English as the Lord. Now remember in, Ad, in Genesis verse chapter, Adam named the animals when he was looking for a suitable helpmate. So therefore, the names he gave to the animals reflected their true nature as far as he was concerned. Therefore, the name reflects the true nature of the person. All right. And so God simply replied by, I am who I am. And I will go through the meaning of that name in a minute. Then, at which point, Moses switched to something else. Incredibility. He basically said, I don't have credibility with the Egyptians and with the Israelites. So I've been a fugitive and from the house of Pharaoh, and the Israelites don't like me anyhow because they think I'm an Egyptian. So why are you sending me? 
right? So you notice how uh, we have the tendency to say, unless I have all the things lined up for the job, I'm not going to do it. Now, that's a good thinking. It's good planning. It's a good thing to do. However, when God assures you that He will help you in an area, it's good to trust Him to because that's part of your planning. Trust of God is part of your plan. Not an aside, not a crouch that you kind of hang on to until things work on their own. The trust of God is part of your plan. Who is your ally? It's God. Is this part of God's will for me? Yes, it is. How do I know? If it's part of the teaching of the Catholic Church... It is part of God's plan for you. As simple as that. Now that I know that, now that I know God will be with me, I'm going to act accordingly. I'm going to execute on that belief. Not set it aside and then go do something else. Yeah? So, God then decides to give Moses empirical signs. Moses asks, okay, but I, I'm still, I'm not the right guy for the, okay. Then God says, I'm going to show you. And I give him three signs, which I don't know if you really would like them. Because the kind of signs we would have asked for is, God shows Moses, I don't know, an army of 200,000 angels. Well, that would be really cool, right? Or maybe God would have said, you know, open sesame, and there would be this cave full of treasures that he could draw upon, right? Or he could have turned Moses into some sort of modern Cinderella or something. I mean, the equivalent in the male, yeah, super, super Moses, right? That's it. That would be really cool, the cape and the whole thing. And a big M in the middle instead of an S. Now, these are signs we like, right? They speak of what? Of empowerment. They show that I have the power to do whatever God... They exude that sign that I am who I am. You see the problem? All these signs are replacement for God. Because they affirm my existence instead of affirming God's existence in me. That's our problem. That's right where our problem begins. I want people to see me for who I am, instead of I want to people to see God through me. We are self-centered instead of being God-centered. Moses was no different. So God gives him three signs. Okay, give me that rod of yours. Gives him the rod and turns into a snake. Probably Moses jumped a couple of feet back. Then the snake turns back into a rod. Sign number one. The second sign, put your hand in your bosom. He does that, take it out, and it's leprous. It is white. I mean, the leprosy is now reached the final stage. How do you like that sign? Uh-huh. Put it back in, take it back out, and it's normal. And the third sign, he tells him, a bowl of water will turn into blood. So what is that? I mean, what is God up to? God the magician? God the trickster? Is that, is that what it is? What is, this, what is the meaning of the first sign? The rod turning into a snake. God, the author of life. Because he took an inanimate object and turned it into a living creature. Why a snake? Of all the creatures out there, I mean, wouldn't it be nice if it was a bunny, right? Or a dog, Moses was a shepherd, right? Dog would have been mighty useful. Yeah, the snake was talking to Eve. Okay, but then why bring the snake then? There are going to be a couple of reasons why. I mean, there are multiple reasons. But one of the fundamental reasons is, as we said earlier, the snake 
I mean, the, the, the evil one appeared in the form of a snake. God turning that rod into a snake shows what? He is the creator of all. He has dominion even over a snake. He is the Lord of all. That's the first sign, right? The first meaning. The second meaning, we'll see when we get to that snake of uh, bronze that will happen later in Exodus. right? And um, the third meaning is one that is really related to, um, <clears throat> to the cross, to the cross of our Lord. And, and again, it's related to the second one, so we'll get to that. The second is a healthy hand becomes leprous, then it is restored. Right? It becomes leprous and it is restored. What is a sign of? What is God saying? He is the Lord of sickness as He is the Lord of healing. The Lord of both. Not only one, both. Both. Yeah? Exactly. He gives and He takes on both sides. And sometimes... Being sick is the most wonderful gift God can give you. And sometimes being healed is the most wonderful gift God can give you. And sometimes being healed is the greatest sign of God's wrath. And sometimes being sick is the greatest sign of God's wrath. You cannot infer from the symptom what the root cause is. Whether it's healing or sickness. And we talked about that many, many times how our prayer is always biased towards our own self a serving interest where somebody's sick we immediately pray for healing without wisely considering the purpose of that sickness right some sickness is unto eternal health and we want it some sickness is not when we don't want it we immediately pray for for healing right away on auto mode as if every sickness is evil there are many people who converted because of these situations so, exercise prudence and right judgment. Then he says, I'm inarticulate, I can't talk. You know, just somebody said somebody else. The interesting thing about this is that in Acts 7.22, St. Saint St. Saint Stephen draws attention to Moses and he says, Moses was instructed all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Mighty in his words. So, potentially, Moses was basically either lying, say, I really can't speak, but he really could, right? Or, it was a true cause of concern in the beginning, but God overtook it, right? God overtook it. He made, he opened up his mouth and allowed him to speak. And then finally, Moses is insubordinate. He says, Lord, send somebody else. All the arguments were given. God answered each one of them. No more. There's still the hardness of heart. And he says, send someone else. Then, if you go back to Scripture and read it, God's anger flared against Moses. God's anger was aroused. And what do you think would happen if God's anger was aroused? What would God do if he's angry? You know, turn him into a toad or something. Right? What, what did God do when he was angry? He gave Moses what he asked for. He said, your brother Aaron will speak for you. Well, okay. God was angry and he gave Moses what he asked for. Wasn't that great? Do you understand what I'm trying to get at? 
When we pray, we judge the fruitfulness of our prayer by God's answer. If God gives us what we're asking for, we think, Woohoo! I'm in business. God answered my prayer. And if God does not give us what we're asking for, then we go into this existential crisis. Why aren't you answering my prayer? Type thing. Judging his love based on the answer. Here, God was angry with Moses and he gave him what he was asking for. Yeah? This is how it works. And it's counterintuitive to us. God's wrath, if God is wrathful with us, guess what he do? What, do we, what he does? He gives us what we're asking for. That is his way of showing his wrath. When God is merciful, he gives us what we need. What we truly need, which we may not even know that we need it. And in his justice, he will give us what we need when we ask for it. We have an intuition of this. We all know if I stood here and asked God for a million dollars, I want to win the lottery. We all know something is wrong. I mean, it doesn't take much study to realize if I'm praying for God or, or I'm, Lord, I'm going to Vegas, make sure I win. We know something is wrong, right? Where it gets tricky is if we pray like this, Lord, my son is sick, please heal him. We automatically assume that healing is the right thing here. Hmm? We're not in the habit of getting into conversation with God and saying, what must I be praying for? Because we're not in the habit of fostering a true and deep and abiding devotion to our guardian angel so that he may enlighten our minds as to God's purpose and help us pray the right way. Always remember that. Do not judge the sanctity of somebody because God answered or did not answer his prayer. Doesn't work that way. All right. God as Lord of history. We already hinted at that last week, so I'm not going to be spending a lot of time here, but there are a couple of things that are really worth pointing to, uh, pointing at. So, first of all, we notice that the, we are given the privilege of seeing the events from the divine point of view in Scripture. So, God describes what is about to happen, and the narrative follows the same pattern depicting the events. Yet, there are variations due to human responses. So, for instance, initially when God told Moses, you will go and speak to Pharaoh and say this and that to him, Aaron was not in the picture. But because Moses was so stubborn... Aaron entered the picture. And what was the result? Aaron was such a good spokesman that he managed to get everybody to build the golden calf. Yeah, Moses got what he asked for. God is always in control of the outcome. God is in, con in control of the outcome, whether yesterday or today. When I'm in conversation with Catholics, I can very quickly determine the depth of their faith by the level of anxiety concerning the political situation. They think that we need to fall into activism to get the situation fixed. And they think it's the problem with these Democrats or Republicans or whatever the case may be. When the problem is within ourselves. And the problem is that we're not pursuing holiness. 
And the problem that we forgot was is God with us. And God is about to change history. And He is the Lord of history. And everything that is happening today, as it happened to yesterday, was because of His will. That Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. Hence, as a Catholic, we ought to live with this deep-seated abiding joy, knowing that Jesus Christ is the Lord of our personal history and the history of the world. And that anxiety has no place in our hearts. That's how we witness. And this is work, by the way. This is not easy, nor does God expect it to be easy. I am not trying to tell you that if it's not intuitive to you to live in that state, then there's something really wrong with you. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you will be confronted with anxiety. You will be confronted with questions and doubts and suffering and and temptations because the devil, your enemy, is seeking to devour you. You will be confronted with those things. You will go through upheaval. That's part of the course. The question is, how do you react? How is your response to all of this? Are you beginning and beginning again? Are you saying, Jesus, I trust in you? And living it out. That's how you grow in the faith. That's what you present to the Lord the day of your judgment. Those are the things that matter. And I can't tell you, from God's perspective, when He sees a mother at home today taking care of her children, there is more glory for this woman than many a pope. The glory of mothers are incomprehensible in our eyes. We don't understand it until we see it in heaven. Now, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. There are some explanations we will tell you. That's a sort of a euphemism to say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That kind of sidestepped the difficulty of God hardening somebody's heart. You may find that in some of your commentaries or scriptures that, well, you know, this is a way of saying God is always in control of everything. And therefore, under his control, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Well, if that's the case, why don't we just come out and straight out and say it? Pharaoh will harden his heart. Why does God repeatedly say, I will harden his heart? Actually, he doesn't always say it. There are times where scripture explicitly says, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and there are places where it says, the Lord hardened his heart. What's the difference? First of all, how many of you are comfortable with the notion that God can harden somebody's heart? One, two, three, four, five. Okay, good. We're making some progress here. How many of you are extremely uncomfortable? Please raise your hand because it will help me understand how much time I'm going to spend on this. Okay. Very good. So let's start by asking this question. How many of you believe that God can soften someone's heart? Yeah. How many of you are, are comfortable with that? Yeah. Okay, that is like, this is what I call the Santa Claus syndrome. God as Santa Claus, right? Dear Santa Claus, Calvin, for those of you who read Calvin and Hobbes, or have sons uh, like my own, who pretty much memorized every page of Calvin and Hobbes, and who loves to recite it at dinner time. Here is my list of presents. And I've been a really great boy. Please send me all that stuff. And there's like 30 pages of things Calvin wants, including a surface-to-surface missile launcher. We treat God as Santa Claus. Right? It's okay. For, God has to soften them. Come on. God is, God is cuddly and, and cute. 
with a big white beard and he's always smiling and he's very, very nice. Hmm. That may be the image that this, this period, this era we live in wants to project so that it smooths over our problems and our sinfulness and our inadequacy before the Lord. But that is certainly not the God of the Bible. I'll make it really simple, really easy, and really short. You're not going to like that, but that's the truth. St. Ambrose, or St. Bonaventure, is a really, really nice, very wonderful, gentle saint, is the one who wrote about mercy and about God's grace. And he says this, the acts of mercy, I mean, God's grace, God's mercy is infinite. We all know that. Because it's really part of his most important attribute, and God is infinite, therefore his mercy is infinite. So far, so good. But let us not conclude that because God's mercy is infinite, therefore his acts of mercy towards somebody are infinite. You understand the difference? His mercy is infinite, but not the number of times he's going to extend mercy to somebody. God will do it a finite number of times, obviously because we are, we are going to die. Therefore, it is finite because we die. Well, who allows us to die? Do we die on our own? No. God permits death. Yes? Yes. He's the author of death. You agree with me? So, if you die one day, what does... I mean, not if. When you die, what was God saying about the acts of mercy he was willing to extend to you? Finito. Huh? The bus stops here. His acts of mercy are finite. Yes? Okay. Now, we can all understand that. Where we get really perturbed is if we think that God's acts of mercy stop before the death of a person. Meaning that God no longer extends His mercy towards that person while this person is alive. Why do you think God would want to do something like that? A sign to wake us up, meaning He's extending an act of mercy. Pardon? Potentially to someone else. I agree. Yes? To increase His punishment. Exactly. To increase His punishment. You see, we're all comfortable understanding there are levels of graces and glories in heaven. We're all comfortable with that. But that there are levels of damnation and suffering in hell, now that's a different story. Because we really like the Santa Claus God. Not the God that condemns us to hell. Now that we don't like. We need to come to terms with God. We need to mature in our faith and truly understand who God is. In our last, in, in the Sunday reading, in our liturgy, last Sunday, we're in the season of the Holy Cross. The letter from St. Paul, in his letter, St. Paul said what? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Nowhere did he say, work out your salvation with laughter and giggles. What does that mean, fear and trembling? It simply means realize the awesome holiness of the Lord and act accordingly. It means if you're standing before Mount Everest and thinking about climbing that mountain, you're going to do it with fear and trembling. You're going to take all measures, all precautions to tread carefully. Because you know if you fall, yeah. Do you understand? Okay. God hardened his heart because Pharaoh, number one, set himself up as God. Number two, did not know Joseph. So therefore, he reneged the graces coming to Egypt through Joseph. He rejected the graces. 
God extended towards him multiple occasions for him to come back. There were a time where the Pharaoh could have repented from his action. He refused. And when he decided to kill the babies, to kill all the baby boys, right? he effectively, according to what Scripture is telling us, had reached that limit of God's grace extended to him. At which point, God hardens his heart. What does that mean? He simply does not extend to him his mercy. When God removes his mercy, all he has to do is remove his mercy and our heart hardens right away. Yeah? That's all he has to do. Now his mercy is not due to us. You understand that? God does not owe us mercy. That's another one of our presumptions. We think, of course God owes us mercy. He does not. In all justice, in all justice, we were bound to hell because of the sin of Adam and Eve. All of us would have gone to hell and now would have been perfectly just on God's part. If you have a problem with that, you have a problem with pride. You need to pray about that. Pride keeps you away from fully, not fully, but I mean really understanding in your own life the holiness of God. And once you come to realize how awesome and how holy God is, all these issues go away. It becomes a matter of course. And it becomes intuitive. Yeah, that makes complete sense. But you understand, God did not owe us to save us. He did not owe us to send His only Son to die for us so we'd be saved. He did not owe us this. He doesn't owe us today. He can stop it right now. Remember what Jesus said? Everybody gets started by this. But when the Son of Man will come again, what, is, what was the question that Jesus asked? Will He find faith on earth? And people kind of get troubled by this. Does this mean it reflects on Jesus' weaknesses? Or His ability to make sure there's faith on earth? Or the work of the Holy Spirit? Nothing to do with any of this. It simply means, when the Son of Man comes back, will it be in a situation where He, the Son of Man, had hardened everybody's heart? You understand? The end of the world does not have to come while there are still faithful on earth. Nowhere does Jesus say this is going to happen. Yeah? That question bears witness to this. The church will go on, but it could be a very small group that is completely invisible. Nobody hears about it anymore. It's completely possible that that is the case. In which case, God is truly hardening the heart of men because He's increasing their punishment. You understand? Yeah. When you put that back into the equation, many of these passages become meaningful. They become easier to understand. Okay? That's the hardening of the heart of Pharaoh. All right. That's why God is the Lord of history. And we should treat him as such instead of fretting about what we are going to do. The question is, what is he going to do? And he told us, you be faithful to my covenant, I will bless you. You're unfaithful to my covenant, I will curse you. The curses initially are medicinal. Like you're spanking somebody to get them to go back and do what they're supposed to do. But if they persist, they become terminal. Yeah? Anybody has issues with that? No? You're all cool with this? Oh, come on. We all have issues with that. All of us have issues with that. This is exactly what we don't want. That's the rebellion of original sin. That's what we don't want. 
that kind of limit that says, I am the creator, you're the creature. I call the shots, you follow. And our rebellion is right there. We don't want that. We want to be who we want to be. I want to do it my way. Who has God to tell me what I'm supposed to do? Be ever mindful of this. Of course we have an issue with that. That's where our work is. To obey God. Despite the sting of original sin that pulls us elsewhere. That says, forget him. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to be my own little tyrant. And make sure everybody around me is going to be miserable. Because I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to be my Pharaoh. You understand? Those are the choices. Tyranny or God. The name of the Lord. Let's go through that. So the name of the Lord, the tetragrammaton as it's called, because it consists of these four letters of the Hebrew alphabet, is I am who I am. And by this answer, another way of saying it is he is who he is, or I am the one who is. So multiple answers, the, the two meanings. To make the whole thing really short and keep it straight to the point. Two meanings to this. I am who I am. That meaning means that I am defined by existence. I am the only existence. I exist. Because I am existence. You are not. We are all, what do we call, what do we call ourselves, the technical term? Contingent beings we have our life is contingent upon god remembering us if he ceases to remember us what happens to us we disappear we do not exist on our own god exists on his own he is the only existence there is he is the only presence there is that's what sets him apart the second is i am the one who is with you. I am not perfect existence remote from you. I am existence with you, within you. You are all thriving, seeking life to the fullest. What is happiness? Happiness is to live life to the fullest. That's what happiness is. When you know that you are completely existence, when you know that you exist, and that existence, existence, perfect existence means no disharmony, no diseases, no sadness, no sickness, no nothing that perturbs or interrupts. That, that is perfect existence. So therefore, we all want to be. Right? We all want to be. Instead, what do we end up doing? We spend our time wanting to have. Right? We think that having substitutes for being, which is really, really silly. If you really think about it, be like a kid thinking that a, a, a plastic car substitutes for the real thing. Okay? We spend our time wanting things when in fact we should be wanting to be. Right? We, we spend our time with things that are dead instead of spending our time with the one who is. We think that an hour watching a football match is better than an hour spent in adoration. And on and on the list goes. Okay. He is with you. And here's the amazing thing. Moses saw him as a fire over a bush. The fire burned, but the bush was not destroyed. 
Now, I don't want you to think of the fire as sort of superimposed on top of the bush. That would be the wrong image. It would be like sort of a, a cloud of fire sitting right on top of the bush. But between the cloud of fire and the bush, there is this sort of protective layer. That No, that's the wrong image. The fire is coming from the bush. But the bush is not being burnt. What is the implication? The implication is that the bush is constantly regenerated. As it burns, it regenerates. What is that? That is eternal existence. You'll never die, right? Yeah? That's the meaning. As the bush burns, the fire regenerates the bush into life. The bush gives itself to the fire, and the fire recreates the bush. That's how it works. Who's, who's the bush? Uh-huh. You got it. If you don't have that burning fire, what happens to the bush that doesn't have the burning fire? It dies, and what do we do with it? We throw it into... Exactly. You understand what that is? That's the fire of Gehenna. The fire of hell. Whereas the bush that freely gives itself to that living fire of God is what? Regenerated. Yeah? You understand that? Okay. So you imagine the power of that fire on the bush. It constantly brings into it life. And that life is what? It's truly supernatural life. life because the, the fire itself is supernatural and can only communicate what it is. Supernatural life, yes? So the leaves, in a sense, become holy. And that's why he said, take off your sandals, because this ground is holy. It communicates with the entire thing, to the roots. That was Yahweh that Moses saw in the burning bush. Yeah? Now, what is the greatest sign of God's presence in us? The greatest sign that he gave us. Pardon? No, 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 no. His presence in us. It is called... No, 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 no. It is called Yahweh in the womb. The fire that burned in that bush became a child in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And he communicated to her his supernatural life. He completely imbued her with his fire. She gave herself to him in return He gave her supernatural life in ways we cannot even begin to imagine. Yahweh in the womb. Because that was the Lord Jesus Christ talking to Moses. We make that case from John chapter 1. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And through Him everything was made and nothing that was made that was not made without Him. So the name of God isn't just I am who I am as in sort of a name. You have to connect that to what? The burning bush. What we happen is we just intellectualize the whole thing. We drop the bush and the fire and Moses and all of that stuff. We're stuck with the name. And we forget everything else. As if God gave us that burning bush for nothing. He gave us his name while being a fire. So what is the... You come to know him as the one who is when you yourself give yourselves as that burning bush. That's how you come to know who he is. If you are unwilling to do that, you will not know the Lord. Yeah? All right.
Now, let's go through this um, passage, which I think is quite important, and I'll see if I can then cover the rest uh, next week. The passage I'm, I'm referring to, which is kind of really interesting, and uh, many will tell you it's sort of a difficult read on Scripture, is here. In chapter 4, verse 24 through 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him, meaning Moses, and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, or a bridegroom of bloods. Plural. If you want to back to go to the Hebrew. So he let him alone. Then it was that she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. So God, after telling Moses, I'm sending you to do all these things, met him and sought to kill him. Hmm. God the murderer. Okay, people will, I mean, many commentators will tell you this passage is fraught with difficulties, perplexing, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, it is if you don't understand the covenant. If you do, it's really easy. It's really easy. I'll put it to you this way. It happens in this community all the time. Mommy and daddy have a kid. Kid is three years old. Kid is not baptized. Why? Because we're waiting for the family to show up from whatever so we can baptize the kid. That's what's going on here. Moses is supposed to go as the representative of God, and bring the people of God out of Egypt, and he has not circumcised his own child. So therefore, what happens when you don't obey the covenant? The curses of the covenant apply. God has, shows no partiality. And so he, he, th- he sought to kill him, presumably through some sort of a sickness. His wife had, remember what I told you, was the woman who was saving the day? Here we go again. She had that foresight, that wisdom to understand because the child was not baptized, rather circumcised back then. So she circumcises the son and then God leaves him, meaning he is better. How many people, I cannot tell you how many people in the Catholic Church today suffer job losses, health issues, children being rebellious, problem in their families, divorces, dissensions, because they are unfaithful to the covenant and do not live by the laws of the covenant and they flaunt it, thinking there is no consequence whatsoever. I don't want to say that every suffering and every problem is due to this. Make sure you understand my words. This is not a symmetric argument. There are many holy souls who suffer for the salvation of others. So again, I don't want you to think, ah, this person is suffering, therefore you cannot do that. No one knows what's in the heart. I'm not casting aspersion or accusing anybody of anything. But it is obvious that if you are not going to follow the covenant, God will be patient with you for a little while, and a little while more, and after that, He's going to whack you on the head. He whacked Moses on the head. Why do you think He's not going to whack you on the head? Do you understand? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Your actions matter. They have consequences on you, your children, your children's children, down to the fourth generation. Down to the fourth generation. Your actions matter. So, if you are in that situation, if you know someone who's in the situation, encourage them to go to confession. Encourage them to repent. Change their hearts and then get on with it. Trusting God and trusting His Word and His power in their lives. And everything will change. So that's essentially the meaning of this passage, very briefly. But I just wanted to cover it, not spending a lot of time on it, 
Just in case you read it, you wonder what was going on here. That's what was going on. All right. And let's see. So yeah, please, if you know somebody who has a kid just born, the church requires the kid to be baptized in the four, first four weeks of life. Beyond four weeks, you are disobeying God. Don't give me any of those stupid man-made tradition of waiting for a bunch of people to show up. And by the way, all these people would be committing the same sin as you if they told you to wait. So it's a bunch of sinful people showing up to celebrate putting that kid in danger for I don't know how long. Because you understand, as far as we know right now, a kid that dies without baptism cannot enter heaven. Yeah? You understand that? Baptism is absolutely required. Now, if you have a parents, for instance, the child, um, um, uh, the mother um, um, miscarried and they didn't baptize the baby, well, you don't have to worry about it. If their intention was to baptize that child, that child is taken care of. God will go by your intention. But when you delay that long, you're flaunting God's graces. You're saying, I'm willing to put the eternal salvation of my kid on the line so I can please my mother-in-law. Or my father, or my uncle, or my aunt, or whomever else. Don't do that. Your actions matter. Okay. The last thing I'd like to point out to you today is Moses as a leader. When Moses becomes a leader, and you see God forming him, he is a leader as what? As the servant of God. God, it is, who does all these signs through him. He is the servant of God. He leads by being a servant. We lead by being a servant. By serving others. I got to tell you, we can't serve others unless we see Christ in them. Unless we understand that's a conversation I'm having with God by serving others. So the more your eyes are locked on the cross, the more you can serve others. Truly serving them. That means your first and foremost concern is not what they think of you and is not um, how they may judge your words or this or anything. Your foremost concern is their eternal salvation and nothing else. So Moses is not a miracle worker. He is portrayed as the Lord's servant. He's the one who serves. And that's very important. And because of that, in verses 22 and 23 of chapter... Five, I believe, he says, why have you done this to the people? Because remember, Pharaoh, when Moses went and said, we need to go and offer sacrifice, Pharaoh said, you're lazy, I'm going to increase the load. And as a result, everybody's grumbling, and Moses is upset. So then Moses goes back to God and says to him, why have you done this to the people? Why have you sent me? You have not rescued your people. By allowing us to listen to... Mo so essentially, Moses has this prayer in which he truly pours out his heart to God in terms that express anger. Lord, why did you do that? And in that, he introduces this tradition of those friends of God who speak to God freely. Saint Martha, Saint Mary did the same thing. Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died, right? They spoke freely to him about their sorrows. They didn't hold back. And Jesus didn't say, how dare you speak to me like this? I am God. 
the friends of God speak to him freely. You remember the story I told you about St. Teresa of Avila who, who, who is going in Spain. She's sick and she's wearing the whole habit and it's Spain and it's summer and it's humid and it's hot and the wheel of their chariot breaks and there's a bunch of nuns trying to fix it and she's sick and it's midday. So she lifts her eyes to heaven and says, Lord, why are you treating us so? She can say that. The Lord answers her and says, this is how I treat my friends. And she replies back and says, well, then don't complain if you have so few of them. She could do that because she was the friend of God. So here's a tip. If you're about to have an argument with your mother, your wife, your husband, whomever else, somebody really close to you, you're about to have an argument. Go to a room where you have a crucifix, close the door and have an argument with the Lord. It's much, much better, I assure you. Way better. He can take it. He's on the cross. He took it. Much better than your wife or your mother or whomever else. They're not able to take it as well. He can. But be right with him. That means your intentions, your heart is the right place. You want to do his will. No matter what. Alright? We'll cover then the rest next week. Let's uh, finish with the word of prayer. And then we'll take some questions. Very good question. Beautiful question. The question is, when you want to do God's will... What do you do? Do you just jump into, into the fray and do things? Or do you actually sit down and take the time to discern? And the answer is yes. I'll give you two examples. Two examples. First, Our Lady. When she went to the temple, she found our Lord and she told him, Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I were searching for you, sorrowing. And Jesus said, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I was in my father's? Scripture says, They didn't understand what he told them. Yet Mary pondered all these things in her heart. And she must have pondered them for a very long time. Here's one example. There are other examples that one can give of lives of the saints, as you said yourself, where you go through a process of discernment. So, for instance, St. Augustine gives us a process of discernment. He says, if you want to know whether you should do something or not, first, pray. Second, consult with wise people. People with wisdom. That means um, the wisdom of the Lord, but also the wisdom of the world. Right? If you want to know if you should invest in something, well, you pray, you pray, you consult with people who are wise with the Lord, and you consult with people who are wise with investment. Yeah? Then you make a decision. Then you do it, and you stick with it. Yeah. That was his process. Okay. So many a time, you'd want to do that. However, I'll give you two examples where it's the other way around. The first, St. Joseph. St. Joseph thought about it and thought about it and thought about it and thought about it and made the wrong choice to let Our Lady go. Therefore, he would be taking the brunt of it. He would be taking the, the, the blame. Right? Because he wasn't divorcing her. He was just sending her quietly. Then God said, uh-oh, this is wrong answer, Joseph. This is what you're going to do. He waited for St. Joseph to make the wrong choice and then he told him. The other example is St. Francis. Francis, rebuild my church. Yes, Lord, here's the church. He went on building stones, after, right? But it was not what God wanted for him, right? It can be either or. There is no set answer. The key, though, the key is what, where is your heart? Sometimes, where is your heart? Sometimes, people will, under the guise of going through a discernment process, are really hiding cowardice. They just want to take action. Others, under the guise of holy inspiration... Hide impulsiveness and foolishness. Mm -hmm. The key is, 
is that all, what, what is common to all these people is they were walking with the Lord. It was a conversation with God. As long as we're doing that, we'll get there. That's the key. Am I answering your question? You're right. Today, it's really hard to find human spiritual directors. But there is one by your side. There is one by your side. Your guardian angel. If you learn to hear the voice of your guardian angel, he will direct you. The problem is that many of us are not training ourselves to listen to him. So here's the advice I've been giving for years now and a bunch of people came back and told me it works. If you've never been if never had any devotion to your God and angel, if you're not in the habit of asking him for his help, do this. When you're going somewhere and you want to park, before you get there, tell him, guardian angel, find me a parking spot. How many of you have tried that? Now, why do you think a guardian angel is doing that? Because he wants to teach us about the fact that he's here really to help us. Yes? So you got an angel, then will become a very powerful spiritual director. Yes? You're welcome. Yes. Are you devoted to a saint or to Our Lady? Okay. Whomever saint you're devoted to, right? Pray to that saint to help you foster a devotion to God and angel. See what will happen. Okay? And I, I'm going I'm, I'm to keep it very, very simple for you. I'm going to show you how your guardian angel talks to you in your own life today. So, the angelic faculty in us, I've told you this many times, right? And hopefully it's starting to seep in, is the imagination. Our guardian angel will use whatever in our imagination to speak to us. The ancients put a lot of emphasis on the formation of the imagination. On the other hand, today, we leave the door completely open. So, if your imagination is full of trash because you're watching horror movies and you're watching things that are ugly and you're filling it with ugliness, you're making it really easy to the demons to speak to you and really hard for your guardian angels to speak to you. If, on the other hand, you are watching what goes into your imagination and you're really fostering a spirit of beauty, then you're making it easier for your guardian angel to talk to you. So sometimes the problem is right there. We're not giving the angel what he needs to be able to communicate with us. Now, having said that, there are three voices that speak in you at any moment in time in your life. Three. The fourth is that of the Lord, but let's leave aside. That's very seldom the case. Many a time when people say, the Lord spoke to me, what they really mean is that my guardian angel spoke to me. Because when the Lord speaks, and you can read that in the life of St. Teresa of Avila, she described this very, very clearly. When he speaks, your entire faculties are completely suspended. Because when he said he spoke with authority, it's complete authority. It's an experience that can be, it's compared to nothing in your life. Right? But when your guardian angel speaks, it's much softer. So the, the angel, the demon, and you speak with the same voice in your head. You cannot distinguish it by the timbre of the voice or the, you know, the frequency. No, no way. So how do you know which which is which? So I'll give you an example. You're cleaning the dishes, and you're not thinking about anything, and suddenly you think of your brother dying in a car accident. Many people think, oh, I got an intuition. No, you're being pestered by demon. As simple as that. He's bothering you because he doesn't like it that you're quiet. He wants you to always remain in a state of anxiety. So he tries it. He knows you are concerned about your brother or whatever, and he'll hit you with it. Okay? We think, oh, it's me. And we fret and we make it our own and we run with it. This is exactly what he wants. It's a poisoned pill. And we swallow it. Because we're not trained to be 
defensive in our spiritual life. How do you then distinguish these three voices? Well, it takes some fine-tuning of the ear by prayer. Here's how you do it. If you're living in a state of grace, how do you know if you're living in a state of grace? Very easy. You're going to confession regularly. There's no other way. Okay? If you're not frequenting the sacrament of confession regularly, you're at, in danger of being outside of life of grace. You're in danger. I'm not saying you are, you're in danger. So regularly to me is once a week. If you're not going once a week, whatever frequency you're going at right now, if it's once a year, double it. Make it twice. Okay? The Holy Father, John Paul II, went every day. Because that's the sacrament of mercy. This is where you want mercy, that's where it is. And that's the funny thing. God is sitting there waiting for us so that he can extend his mercy. Confession is the tribunal of mercy. That's how he's there to extend his mercy and shower mercy on us. We don't want it. Okay? So, if you're living in the state of grace, then picture your soul as a lake. The voice of a demon is like a big rock doing a cannon splash in your soul. It disturbs you deeply. It moves you into anxiety or anger or fear, any of those things. Then you know it's, it's, it's a demon. How do you know it's not you? Assuming you're pathologically healthy, you don't have any psychological issues, then if a thought comes to you unexpected, well, it's not you. Isn't that obvious? When you're awake, your will is in control. And if you're not thinking about your brother playing hockey and being hit by a, by a stick, and the image comes to you like that, well, it's not you. As simple as that. Isn't that intuitive? So that's all, that's all. I mean, don't complicate your life. We, we overcomplicate it. It's not you. It's not your image. So what do you do with it? You just let it go and you pray to St. Michael the Archangel. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Da, 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 da. You're, what are you doing? You're whacking the devil in the back. You hit me, I hit you harder. You want to play? Let's play. If, let's say, you're eating a piece of chocolate. It's a pound chocolate you got from Trader Joe's and you're halfway through it. Not that it happens to anybody here, of course. Right? And then you hear this voice that says, very gently, it's not overbearing, it's not imposing, it's not an order. It's a gentle question that does not perturb your soul because you're living in a state of, of grace. Should you really eat the rest? That's your guardian angel. When it comes unbidden, and when, you, when it provokes in you sort of a tug, a reaction that says, well, you know, it's the one, the one bar I eat, I'm allowed to, and you start justifying it. You got an angel just spoke to you. As simple as that. And he's doing it every day. All the time. Once you get in tune with this voice, once you get used to it, how do you get used to it, by the way? Uh, and then what? Listen and obey. You go to this expert pianist, or expert mathematician, or physicist, or whatever the case may be. He's the expert. And you ask him for his advice, and he gives it to you. You look at it, and you do something else. You go again, you ask him again. He gives it to you, you do something else. If you go the third time, what do you think he's going to do? He's going to kick you out, because otherwise he'd be a fool. You got an angel the same way. Why should he talk to you when you're not listening? How do you listen? You obey. Yeah? So, should you really eat the rest of that bar? No, my guardian angel, put it away. On the spot. Then he's pleased. And eventually, as you do that, and you do it more and more, 
you become really interested in pleasing Him because your devotion is deepening and you really want to please Him. Because you're realizing something. Well, it's not just that it's working, it's that you are a sinner and next to you stand this eh, 14 billion years old saint who is so far above you in intelligence, in beauty, and in understanding that is even greater perhaps than to say the difference between a human being and an ant. And no matter what, he is there. And if it doesn't floor you, I don't know what will. And you really, truly develop that deep abiding devotion to him because he is just plain amazing and he sticks by you. No other friend will do that. He's your best friend. That's how you do it. You see, three voices, learn to discern them by the effect on your soul. Make sure you go into regular confession. Make sure you're praying. Then, and make sure you're not watching, you know, I don't know, Friday the 13th or any of those stupid movies. You don't do that. Okay? Make sure you're not watching R-rated movies with nudity and what else. I mean, don't do any of that stuff. Okay? Foster a proper life of prayer. Foster an attitude of prayer. Go to confession regularly and you will be, your, your, your mind will be sharpened and you will start to notice these things. Oh, this thing came and I'm feeling all, ah. well, that's not from God. It's not from my God and angel. It's not from me. It's from the devil. The angel of him. My God, my God, or St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Oh, hail Mary, full of grace. Right? You react immediately. Eventually, when he sees it, every time he hits you, you're going with a prayer at him. You're invoking St. Michael or Our Lady. He gets tired of this. He stops. All this anxiety lessens. Goes down. And then you're trying to do something, and you snap at somebody, and you hear this voice. Did you really need to speak this way? You know, it's not you. You've got an angel. Then, if you really are listening, what do you do on the spot? I'm sorry I snapped at you. I didn't mean to. That's how it works. He's your best spiritual director. Yeah? Everything comes to us from God, the Father, by the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ, our heavenly priest, through the Holy Spirit, in the hands of Our Lady, to the church, to our guardian angel. He's the last right. spot. The difference is that, there, as I said, there are four voices. The fourth one is rare. Okay. That's when the Lord speaks to her directly. Right? But commonly, He doesn't do that. He comes to us through our guardian angel. Right. Yeah? That's why I'm leaving St. Saint Faustina, St. Saint Catherine, you know, all these saints who spoke directly to the Lord on a side, because most of us won't have that. But we have our guardian angel. Yes? yes? All right, very good. So I'll see you next week. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.